All right. Well, here we are. The doctrine of repentance. The doctrine of repentance. The most terrifying truth in the entire universe, the most terrifying truth in Scripture is that God is good. That God is good. Why? Because we are not. We know that we will answer. We must give an answer. We know that He will judge. And each of us responds to that reality in one of two ways. We either ignore that and perish... Or we heed that and repent. That's it. You are actively living in one of those two categories. And those are your only two choices. You are ignoring the fact that you will give an account to your creator, your king and your judge. Or you are repenting as a lifestyle Now, the gospel comes down to this. It must be Christ. It must be blood. I must repent. Christ is God in flesh. He's the God-man. He is the righteous God. And I need nothing less than God's righteousness. I need the righteousness of God. And Christ is true man. And I need a substitute. I need a human to stand in my place. It cannot be an animal. It cannot be an angel. It needs to be a human, a man, to stand in my place. My friends, many of you may have grown up like me, I was raised in the evangelical church and I was a religious young man. But religion is self-righteousness. Religion is self-righteousness. At best, it is a finite and losable righteousness which is not at all good news. Christ is the infinite God with unlosable righteousness. And that is what we need. And so, friend, no matter where you live or what you believe, I know several things to be true about you. Here are a few of them. One, You live in a world created by the God of the Bible. Your whole existence is within the realm created by the God of Scripture. Number two, you are dying. You are dying. I know that's not good news, but it's the reality. You are dying. And you might not see tomorrow. 
Number three, God loves to save sinners. Number four, God is unwilling that you individually perish. God is unwilling. There is a recoiling in God's heart that you individually would perish. Number five, the conclusion. If you do perish in God's punishment in hell forever, it is because you right now refuse to repent. That's it. There must be blood. There must be blood. God is just. And the death penalty for a single sin against infinite holiness is death. Death penalty is the only right penalty. One sin for one life. How many sentences, how many life sentences are you dragging around? Like the train of a bride's gown. How many life sentences hang to your name, hang to your soul? We must repent. But here's the good news. We can repent. We can repent. We get to repent. I don't know if anyone's ever heard something like that before. We get to repent. We get to turn from sin that kills and destroys and robs to Christ who saves, who loves, who heals, who redeems, who rescues friends. If God doesn't judge this American culture in which we find ourselves. He will need to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because this depravity, this disgust, would make God a hypocrite if he doesn't either drive this entire country like Nineveh to repentance or crush it like Sodom. Think about Daniel. Daniel was a godly man, and yet he wept and he repented on behalf of his rebellious and unbelieving nation. And so don't disassociate. May we be driven to repentance even just by looking at our nation and looking what's what's happening around us. And Christ opens two arms to save. And those arms are repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe who Christ is, what Christ has done, what he's continuing to do, and what he will do. Repentance is the message of the Old Testament. Repentance is the message of John the Baptist and of Jesus and of the apostles and of the early church fathers. Paul turned the world upside down with the message of repentance. Augustine wrote that book, The Confessions, and it absolutely revolutionized society. Luther's Reformation rocked the Western world. Whitfield and Edwards brought a great awakening of revival to the American colonies that had long been dead. The message was the same. The message has always been the same, and the message has been repentance. Repentance did all that, and repentance will do it again. So let me ask you, when's the last time you repented? When did you last repent? 
Do you repent to others? Do you actually go up to individuals and say, brother, sister, unbelieving neighbor, I've sinned. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and and I need to turn from that sin to Christ who forgives, who blots out sin. I, I, I need to repent. I'm curious. There's probably about 75 people in this room. How many of us have heard another person say, I repent? I'd venture to say that 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 number's small. And in a room of 75 people, that should absolutely make us stagger. That here we're talking about the doctrine of repentance, and so few of us have heard someone else say, let alone so few of us have said, I repent. I turn. When's the last time that you told someone, I repent? Forgive me. All summer we're studying the doctrine of repentance, which is essentially the teaching of turning from self-love to God. From self-service to God. From self-obsession to God. We've seen that repentance is a miraculous gift that God gives. That God is gracious because God leads sinners to repent. I'll say that again. God's graciousness is shown in that God leads sinners like you and I to repent. Have you ever thought of repentance as evidence that God is gracious? So that we see the holiness of God and our great unholiness. That we we see his incredible love and how we spurn his love. That we see how every atom of our being, every moment of our life is an undeserved gift from a very good God. And we raise our fist at him. That's the point. God is good. You are not. I am not. And scripture is devoted to solving how the good king, who is just and righteous, how he can reign with sinners who simply are not. How can he be just and yet fully pardon a traitor? Justice must be executed. His character demands it. The love that is within the triune God between those three persons demands justice. And justice demands death. It's only right that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit vindicate one another. Jealous for one another in love. Would you not wish to see a great crime committed against your loved one vindicated? And would we think that God is less than loving, that he should forsake such vindication, such justice in his love? Thomas Watson says, repentance is a grace. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled 
and visibly reformed, inwardly humbled before God, and visibly so that all can see that I am changed. Now, some of you young men were at the um, men's conference a while back, and I used an illustration that some of you found amusing. Oranges are sweet and citric, juicy, with zest, and tangy, with popping pulp. And Christian is closing his eyes, imagining it. Repentance. If, if, if that describes what oranges are, you taste them, you feel them. Repentance is sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred for sin, and turning from sin. Repentance is not repentance if it lacks any one of those qualities. It's not biblical repentance. It's not real repentance. Just like an orange is not an orange if it's not orangey. Oranges are orangey and repentance is repentancy. You cannot repent unless you see sin for what it is. Sorrow over sin because sin is sinful. Confess sin in agreement with God about sin, ashamed of sin as shameful, hating sin as hatred of God, and turning always from sin to Him who died for it. This, this is repentance. These aren't steps. These are qualities of real repentance because they reveal authentic love for God. You can't repent. You can't hate sin unless you love God, unless you find God lovely, unless you've you've seen Christ as wonderful, as as breathtaking, as as incredible, and therefore sin against him as wretched, as hideous, as heinous. And so sight of sin is our theme for tonight. Sight of sin. Repentance is sight of sin. The eye has two functions, two main functions, to see and to weep, to see and to weep. And sin must be seen before we weep over it. Sin must be seen. We can't repent for sin we don't see. Do you see that you are a sinner? And because you are a sinner, you sin. That the specific particular things you do are sinful in God's sight. That whatever you do that isn't motivated by the glory of God, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, it's sin. That whatever does not proceed from faith, from active believing and cherishing of God's promises, is sin. 
that whatever, whenever you know the right thing to do it and you don't do it, you fail to do it, that that is sin. Okay? You stack those definitions of sin up on yourself and how much of your life is sin? Not doing things conscientiously for the glory of God. Failing to do the right thing. Doing anything that's, that's just to do it and not motivated by belief of God's promises. There's plenty of occasion to repent. You remember what Jesus told the paralyzed man when they lowered him into the ceiling as Jesus taught? Do you remember what he said to that man? He said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes, I'm reading Luke 5, the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They got the point. But Jesus, knowing their reasonings, knowing what they were thinking, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier? To say, your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, get up and walk to a paralyzed man? But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Speaking of himself, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up. And picking up your stretcher, go home. And immediately that man rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and he went home glorifying God. And astonishment seized them all and they began glorifying God and they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. And after that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a big crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? You see, they didn't realize, they didn't see that they are sinners. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Are you not a sinner? Then can you be saved if you are not a sinner? If you do not see sensibly that you feel, you see the sin and you feel in your guts, in your bones, I am vile. I am wicked. I am evil. Can you be saved based on what Jesus said? No, unless you see that you're a sinner, you can't be saved. You're actually out if you think you're good. I sat with a young man a couple of months ago. He's my age. I grew up with him, went to school with him. He and I have, have, have lived very different lives. He went into the tankards of depravity. And, and, and I was equally depraved, but God spared me that life. 
And I sat across from this young man who is in the very pits of the pits of the pits. He's confined to a place where he must stay legally. Otherwise, he gets in serious trouble. And I sat across from this young man as he proceeded to reason with me that he is a good person because he would never break into the house of good people and steal from them. And I sat across from that young man and I said, you are an evil man. You are a wicked man. You are a vile man. You are a criminal in the eyes of God and mankind. And you must repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ because he only came to save sinners like you and like I. And it stunned him. I wonder if it stuns you this evening. Luke 18 says that Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. My friends, listen, I don't know all of you personally. If you're coming tonight and you're a religious person, you trust in yourselves for righteousness. And God will not accept that. He opposes that. He opposes that. He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Here's the parable. He said two men went up to the temple to pray. Both men go up there to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Tax collectors were traitors. They were horrible people in the eyes of the Jews in that day. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He heard the self-righteous. God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, this sinner over here. And the tax collector said, he's right. God, be merciful to me, the sinner of whom he speaks. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified. That is right with God rather than the other man. That's astonishing. The heroes of the Bible were all saved sinners. They were sinners saved by grace. David was the king of Israel. He conspired to steal his best man's wife, kill that man, and cover all of it up. While the baby grew... Ah, got a hair in my mouth. It's driving me nuts. I think we're good. I think we're in the clear. While a baby grew in his mistress's tummy... David folded his arms and refused to repent for months.
for nearly a year. Listen to Psalm 32, which David wrote after the fact. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. I don't know, dear friends. Who of you are under the heavy hand of God this evening? My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. We can relate to that. I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity, my wickedness, I did not cover it up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He's astonished by this. That's what God does. When we uncover our sins, that's what God does. We uncover, He covers. We, we, we reveal them to God. He conceals them to us. And David records for us how that initial confession went. Psalm 51. How did it sound? Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's not just looking at bad things he does. Help me to stop doing bad things. He doesn't talk that way. He says the problem is thorough. The problem is in my heart. The problem is in my soul. I must be purged and expunged. I need a thorough cleansing. I am thoroughly sinful. My heart's desires are wicked. I need you to cleanse me. Wash me thoroughly. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned. And I've done what is evil in your sight. You see, that side of sin. That side of sin. To see how God sees sin. You don't see your sin until you see how God sees your sin. So that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. You get this, what David is conceding. I'm a liar. I lie about my sin in my most honest confessions, in my most honest repentance. I am holding back, but you are the truth teller. You are justified when you judge. You are pure when you speak. And so speak and speak true. Because what you say of my sin is true. When I'm not willing to be true enough. Behold, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity. The problem isn't just me doing things. I was born in sin. My mother conceived me. I was sinful through and through. So create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Then, he says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a crushed heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You see, that's, that's it. Your religion is garbage. 
your religion is worse than garbage. Garbage at one point was useful for something and has been thrown aside. No, your religion and my religion, it is repulsive in God's sight. It's never been useful for anything. It's only good for burning. David saw that he was totally sinful. The truly repentant person sees their sin as God sees it, and they turn from it. And Jesus sent his preachers in Acts 26 to open people's eyes so that they may turn. Do you hear that? You can't turn. You can't repent unless your eyes are opened to see that you are a great sinner, but Christ is an even greater Savior than you are a sinner. That yes, your sins are multitudinous, but Christ's mercies are infinite. Jesus illustrates repentance in the prodigal in Luke 15. He says, when the boy came to himself, when he came to his senses, he saw that he's a sinner. We see in creation that God first said, let there be light. And in new creation, God says, now you are light in the Lord. So my friends, there is a sense in which you must come to yourself before you come to Christ. And I am not telling you to be true to yourself. I am telling you to be real with yourself about how untrue you are. And how true he is. See your sins as Christ sees them. And then you'll sprint to him. As the only name under heaven by which you must be saved. There is no other hope. My testimony. I'm going to just give you a couple highlights. I grew up in an evangelical church. Very similar in many ways to this one. I saw... A lot. Every Sunday I was in church. Every Wednesday night I was in church. Many other times during the week I was in church. My grandma was the secretary of the church. I heard the word of God taught and preached and sung in Sunday school and worship services and Awana. My home was filled with God's word, but I was blind. I did not see the beauty of Christ or the hideousness of my sin. I was terrified by the thought of getting caught in sin. That scared me because I hated discipline, I hated consequences, and more honestly, I hated that others would think low of me. That's not repentance. But I didn't hate sin. I didn't see sin is sinful. I didn't see it as lovelessness to God and hate it for that. And so let me tell you how I know that I didn't see sin as sinful. I remember at a Good Friday celebration. Good Friday is is the night during uh, the year when we particularly give attention to the historical events of Christ's crucifixion. When he died on the cross for sinners. And I remember looking around in the room. It was dark, it was dimly lit, and I remember being able to see the the tears glistening in the reflection of the light in the eyes of many people. And I remember conscientiously thinking to myself, I have no idea what's got them so upset. I knew what was being presented before us. 
I knew the truths of the gospel, but I was old enough to be aware this does not affect me. I have no idea why people are sad. When I accidentally saw pornography in sixth grade, I was more troubled that I would get into trouble than I was that my clean eyes had seen grotesque immorality. My senior year of high school brought a few really godly friends at Faith Academy in the Philippines. They were very serious about studying God's word, seriously so. Not as a religious thing. They loved the Lord and they got together every week and they welcomed me into this group. But I was uninterested. They were just friends to me. The study itself offered nothing to me. Just recently, we were at the Shepherds Conference, and I think several of you heard when my my best buddy, Peter, his younger brother, Nathan, who was like in eighth grade at the time, he said to me now, he's now, what, in his, he's 30-something, 31, he's got a wife and like four kids, okay? This is my best friend's younger brother, and he said, Sam, you're proof of God's miraculous grace of repentance because you were the last man that I imagined in seminary, especially at the doctorate level, at the master seminary. I never would have thought I'd see you here. Finally, the year after I graduated, I went with my dad to build homes for tribal missionaries. Wasn't, I, I, I don't know. I don't know when I was born again, but the, the missionary that we went to visit and to work for had labored to translate an early portion of Luke's gospel. Maybe, maybe what we read today. I don't know. Boy, wouldn't that be providential. The men in the tribe, in this hut without light, devoured this sheet of paper like piranhas tearing flesh. It was, if it wasn't glorious, it would have been grotesque. I mean, it was absolute ravenous feasting. And God used that to show me that I did not love him. I did not love his word. I did not love his truth. I didn't desire him. I didn't want him. I didn't want to know him. I didn't trust him. I didn't obey him. I didn't live for him. I didn't see him as he really is. I didn't see my sin, therefore, for what it really is. And when I did, at 19, while shepherding a junior high ministry at a local church in this town, my world came undone. Everything crashed. My facade of godliness fell. I was now liberated. I was now freed to divulge how self-focused, how self-conscious I am. I repented of my love of comfort, of my self-reliance, of my lusts, of my lack of serious devotion. And one of the first things I repented of was how unkind I had been to my brother for 19 years, or I guess 15, because he wasn't around for the first four years of my life. 
Second Corinthians five says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you understand that's what I'm doing here in front of you tonight? I'm not just some guy that likes to hear himself talk. I have been reconciled by God through the blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ, his death in my behalf. So I stand before you as a minister, as a prime minister of the ministry of reconciliation to say, be reconciled to God. Namely, that God was in Christ on the cross, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions, their violations, their sins against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then we are ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for the king. As God is pleading through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to him. He made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God saw the horrors of sin. He saw the horrors of sin and he crucified his son. Christ saw the torments of sin and he collapsed at the site there in Gethsemane. He saw you. He saw me. He saw all of you. He saw all of me. The darkest, vilest, secretist, scandalous, most humiliating recesses of our hearts. He saw it all. He saw all of it and he swallowed down God's justice against all of our sins. It was once the most horrible truth in the world that God saw all our sins. But praise God he saw all of them because he could put all of them in Christ and punish all of them in Christ in our behalf. And so here's the reality. You repent. You turn from sin. You say, I am a sinner. Save me. Foul. I'm foul. I run to the fountain. I fly to the fountain to be washed by Christ. You say that. And Christ is nothing to you except love. Except salvation. And He loves you. He loves the realest you. He loves you where you need Him most. Where you hated Him most. Where you sinned against Him most. That is where He loves you most. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
He says, come to me, Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I, Christ says, will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Here's my closing charge. Listen ever so carefully. Come to him now. Come to him now. Would you spurn such love? Would you spurn such a beckon call? Come. Come. Come to me. Come now, he says. Don't attempt to unburden yourself. It's your burden that qualifies you to come. Only those who are heavy laden... Only those who are labor. He only summons the heavy laden. He only summons the worn out. He only summons those exhausted with their sin. Those sharp aware that they are bad. That they are evil. That they are sinful. That they need righteousness. Not their own. Is that you? Do you have sight of your sin? Do you see sin? Do you see it really? Christ alone can give rest to the deepest caverns of your soul. He's so gentle. He's so approachable. His heart throbs. Stop striving to get everything in your life right under the weight of its pressures and demands. You can't. You won't. You'll fail. Put pride to death. Put self-reliance to death. Only Christ will make your soul rest. And He promises to give your soul rest. And He does not lie. He will never go back on His guarantees that He forged in the crimson of his blood father we ask that you would bring us to the window that the light of your holiness would shine in that we might see the stain of our sin more clearly and cry save us oh god be merciful to me the sinner we ask, O oh Father, that you would beget this prayer in the heart of every person in this room and that they would discover Christ to be the awesome Savior from sins. Father, we thank you that you made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf that we might become not the righteousness of a good man, but the very righteousness of God in Christ. And so we pray it in his name. Amen. Yeah.